Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have with me today retired Naval Captain Mark Vandroff, whose 30-year career most recently included roles as the major program manager for the DDG-51 shipbuilding program and the commander of the Carter Rock Division of the Naval Surface Warfare Center. He's now vice president of maritime programs at Zenitex. Mark, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thank you very much for having me today. Great. So you wrote a very interesting article a couple years ago where you said that scientists and engineers should read the classics like Aristotle, Cicero, and even the Bible. In part, what you were arguing there, I believe, was that it's important for technologists to be able to interpret user requirements so that they're able to get the right product at the right time. Can you expand on what you're trying to argue in that piece? Sure. Uh when thinking about that piece, uh, I, I referenced the need for engineers to study uh, great works of ancient literature, but I'll, I'll put it in the context of a popular modern book on business and management. Uh, many of your reader, excuse me, many of your listeners uh, might be familiar with Stephen Covey. Uh, he wrote a series of influential books on business, but his most popular is called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of those habits is to begin with the end in mind. And I find that one of the traps that technologists and engineers fall into is they become so in love with the discipline, they become so in love with the technology that they oftentimes forget what that technology is in the service of. That especially for engineers whose work it is to provide the tools of a nation's defense, They have to have the end in mind. What is the effect that they are trying to accomplish? What do they want? What do they want these tools when put in the hands of the warfighters to be able to do in order to produce that security effect? And I thought that there was no better way to understand the human condition and be able to appreciate what the end state is than to be familiar with basic human nature and and the basic human condition. And a lot's been written about that, but I frankly, I've never found a better education at understanding people than the great works of antiquity, than the Bible, than the Aristotle and Plato, Cicero, Marcus Aurelius, Virgil, Homer. The truths about humanity that they wrote about uh, are still truth about humanity, even though we've had 3,000 years or 2,500 years of technology on top of that, people are still people. And that's why I quoted Aristotle's ethics in the beginning that every action, every, if you will, technology has to aim at some good. And when you're an engineer, if you don't know the good that you're aiming at, you will just be fascinated by the next cool thing. That next cool thing may not serve your customer and it may not serve the the human that you're putting the technology you're giving that technology to. So that was the the point that I was trying to make, the need to begin with the end in mind. In the same article, and it was called Power to the Polymath, and we'll definitely put a link up to that online, uh, you also argued that there's just so much information out there today that no one can really be a true polymath like maybe Jules-Henri Poincaré in the 19th century was because there's just too much information and human rationality is is just limited by the amount of knowledge. Now, you've also said that NAVC is such a huge organization. It does so many different functions and things. It actually takes in about $30 billion a year of expenditures on a lot of technology and equipment that no one can really comprehend the entire scope of NAVC as a systems command. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think about management and accountability at higher levels of complexity? So that's a great question. I'm not sure that I would describe NAVC as unknowable, uh, but it is vast. And uh, what you might be referring to is I was on uh, Commander Salamander's podcast a few months ago, uh, and I remarked that the current commander of the Naval Sea Systems Command, Vice Admiral Tom Moore, 
has remarked that even though he spent, before he took command, even though he spent the better part of two decades in various parts of NAVC as both a field grade officer and then later as a flag officer, still after he took command, he learned new things about what goes on at, at NAVC. Um, so it's not unknowable, but it is vast. And you, your question raises a good question about the management of large complex systems um, and, and how can you do that. Um, and I've seen it done well and I've seen it done poorly. Uh, at its best, I would offer three things about how it's done well. And the first one is people and the second one is process. And the third one, which is related to both, is delegation. The way you manage at a high level, at a, at, a, at a high level of complexity, is you manage the people, people manage the work. So um, the, the higher the level of complexity, the more time the leader spends worrying about, do I have the right person doing the right job? Do I have the right people properly trained, properly motivated, properly incentivized? Because uh, someone, especially in a military context at a three or four star level, is certainly not going to be doing very much of the task. They're going to be putting in place the system and, again, most importantly, the people who will get the task done. The second is to have great processes for making a, a decision. One of the things that I thought that when I was part of the NAVC enterprise and I was a, a commander of one of the NAVC field activities, is I thought that NAVC had a great process for making big decisions because it recognized that it was a vast organization. There was a, an excellent process for having the, what we would call a stakeholder or the subject matter experts be able to appropriately participate in the formulation of options so that the commander at the, at the top could make an informed decision even though there were so many complex factors, he couldn't, no single person could be an expert in everything you could draw upon the right expertise to get to a well thought out and functioning decision. But that requires a disciplined process for decision making. Different organizations of different size and types and culture might have different processes, but you can really tell when an organization doesn't have a process for making big decisions because they become, they get made randomly and chaotically instead of in a disciplined manner. And then last, and this is related to both people and process, uh, delegation of decision, not just in level, but also, uh, interestingly enough, in time. Uh, I'll give credit to uh, uh, a name that's probably familiar to a lot of your listeners, uh, Sean Stackley, who uh, was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research Development and Acquisition for all of my time when I was a, a major program manager. Uh, he's now uh, president of one of the business units at L3. Uh, one of the things he taught me, and I, one of the things he was really a master at, both as a program manager and a service acquisition executive, was not just what decision to make, but when to make a decision. And I call this the Stackley curve. If you think about the quality of a decision, you will always make a better decision in the future than you would today because you will know more. You're, if you're always gathering information, you'll always have more information to base your decision on in the future than you do today. The downside of that is the ability of your decision to affect the outcome of a situation is always going down because your decision can only affect what's in the future. Anything that's already happened, any decision you make now cannot affect the past. So you have two curves when it comes to a decision. The quality is going up and its effectiveness is going down. The skilled decision maker understands the rate of change of both of those curves and will understand when to make a decision as much as what decision to make. And so by having the right delegation of who's going to make decisions and an understanding of when the decisions are made and then a process in order to make sure that the decisions you make are fully vetted and drawing the right subject matter experts. Very senior leaders, uh, you know, people who are at the three and four star level, or you know, in our case, we're talking about the defense 
business, so we're talking about leaders within the Pentagon at, at the political appointee levels. If they have the right people below them, if they have the right process for deliberate decision-making, the right delegation at both level and in time, they can make effective decisions. Uh, but it requires a lot of effort and a lot of discipline to be able to do that. Yeah, I like that uh, people, process, and delegation there for handling complex systems and keeping your options open, but still recognizing the fact that you've already made decisions in the past that condition what's going forward. It's interesting that that delegation piece then kind of filters right back into people because I think you were saying there that it really does depend on people and judgment with the aid of calculations and everything you can do, but it really takes that person with tenure and experience to kind of feel their way through or judge their way through. Does that sound about right? Sure. I've often said there is no replacement for judgment. There's no replacement for experience. Um, I will take a, uh, in fact, I'll take someone in a leadership position who has excellent judgment and prudence, even if their experience isn't an exact fit for the, uh, for a position, good judgment, a sense of what is and isn't prudent. That's, uh, that's probably as, as key a skill for a, a, a leader and a decision maker, or a key attribute for a leader decision maker as you could ask for. Yeah, I like the people focus that you're putting there as well because it kind of reminds me of John Boyd's. It goes people first, then ideas, and finally hardware. And I think you even hear this from tech entrepreneurs and the like, such as uh, Ben Horowitz, who had a, had a great book, and he said something similar. He said it's People, ideas, and profits last. So, I had one of my, again, one of my other mentors uh, who's now uh, uh, an executive at Booz Allen, uh, uh, retired Rear Admiral Charlie Hamilton. Uh, He taught me when I worked for him 20 years ago, he would always say, ultimately, we are in the people business. Uh, And I I broadened that to say all business is ultimately the people business. Right. Um, Because people are what accomplish things. Uh, you, you can't get things accomplished without people to accomplish them. So ultimately, we're all in the people business. And uh, I learned that from, uh, from, from Admiral Charlie Hamilton. It was, a, it was a good lesson to be learned early in my career. Well, at least from my perspective, when I'm looking at a lot of the DOD acquisition process, and you see the JSIDs and how it links into the 5000 and the PBBES, the, the Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution System there, it, it all seems like it's focused on the requirements flow into the system and you see this linear process with respect to the project and its costs and its uh, technical attributes rather than kind of like, well, what are what is the person in their career going to be and how they support it? Uh, what do you think about that little dichotomy there of, well, sh- should we be focusing on the people in their careers and then those people, you trust them to make programmatic decisions or... Do you need to get the programming down right, get the requirements in, in mind so that you have the end clearly specified, and then you get the right people to go execute that? Well, they're not, uh, there's a lot to unpack there because those aren't mutually exclusive, and in fact, they're complementary. Uh, I would say one of, and that's interesting, I was uh, uh, at a talk this week, the, uh, the American Society of Naval Engineers had their technology ships and systems symposium uh, here in Washington, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, One of the speakers was uh, a member of the senior executive service from the OPNAV staff. Uh, And one of the things that he talked about was the need to have a requirement setting community that was as trained and as disciplined as what uh, the, and I'll use an acronym, and then I'll explain it. DEWIA, the Defense Acquisition Workforce Improvement Act, which was passed uh, a couple, actually maybe now three decades ago. But what DEWIA did, that law, is that it required a level of professionalism, credential, training for the different acquisition disciplines. So to be a contracting officer, a program manager, a technical director, uh, a logistician within defense acquisition, you had to show that you had studied and understood enough of the basics of that in order to be credentialed at different levels as you progressed along your career. 
And uh, what this one speaker was saying is, is that some part of that at least need to come to the requirement setters so that when you took warfighters and put them in the Pentagon and it was their job to actually uh, define what the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, the Marine Corps was going to need in the future into a set of requirements that could be translated eventually into specifications and contracts that they needed both formal training and on-the-job training in a series of development, a path of development, so that they could become trained and good at that because that was as, if not more, as important of a process in the overall bringing capability to the warfighter as the just straight acquisition piece of that is. That the inputs, so I mean, acquisition is a process that has two inputs. One is money and the other is requirements. Uh, the people who manage the, as you put it, the PBBE system, the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system, defense financial management has a training pipeline, and they are educated at what they do. The people who run the system of acquisition has a training requirement with education for what they do, and the requirement setting uh, is on that path now. Uh, and I think it really requires, there's there's some formal education now, but I think that the Navy certainly is looking at, at invigorating that. Because ultimately, it is, it's the people who you give that task to need to be ready to execute that task. And so, again, like I said, all, all businesses are ultimately people businesses. Yeah, I want to come back to the PBBE process in a little bit. But I thought it was interesting that, you know, you sometimes hear that program managers in the Department of Defense, they have short tenures, they move from one job to another, and they tend, and some people claim that they're caretakers rather than, you know, or the lead advocate of a, of a system rather than, you know, someone that's really managing it. But I came across a slide in 2012 from PEO Ships, and it had you and a number of other program managers who have just tons of experience, 15, 19, 12 years of experience I'm, I'm looking at here. And you were a program manager of the DAG 51 for over five years before you went to Carter Rock. So that's, that's a very interesting fact that there are these uh, managers that do have a wealth of experience. And you kind of made your way from the surface Navy on active, you were still on active duty, but you made your way into the engineering duty officer um, side of the Navy. Can you describe what are engineering duty officers and how did you decide to uh, choose that career path? Sure. So uh, again, for your listeners, uh, a brief tutorial about Navy officers. Uh, Navy, what other services would call military occupational specialties, the Navy refers to as communities. And the Navy officer communities are broadly grouped into three areas. There's what the Navy calls the unrestricted line officers. So these are uh, surface warfare officers, submarine officers, naval aviators, naval flight officers. Uh, they are officers who typically you're going to think of as someday having command at sea and employing operational forces. Uh, you then have the staff corps officers, which are like your chaplains and your doctors and your lawyers, who you would think of as not having... Uh, line command of organizations, except maybe an organization made up solely of, of that profession. A doctor would have command of a hospital, uh, or a JAG officer would have command of a, of a legal regional legal services office, but they wouldn't have command responsibility over forces. They're commissioned, and they're there to provide that, that very niched expertise and uh, uh, expert services in the areas that they've been trained for, whether that's you know, religious ministry or being a, a bar accredited lawyer or providing, you know, being an accredited physician, that, that's what a staff corps officer is there. There's a third group of officers that are called restricted line officers. Uh, and that's where you get intelligence officers, uh, oceanographers, and in my case, engineering duty officers. So the engineering duty officer community is a community within the restricted line community. Uh, officers there would have command, but not command at sea and not command of operational forces. And it's their job to provide direct and immediate support in their specialty 
to the unrestricted line communities. And in the case of engineering duty officers, that's providing them with the ships and systems that go on ships for the, 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 the operating forces that employ those, those ships. So uh, that's what the engineering duty officer is. It's a restricted line community. Uh, it's focused heavily on the life cycle of ships and submarines, on their design, their acquisition, their maintenance, ultimately their disposal. And, and that community, which tends to be heavily populated at systems commands, like NAVC or the SPA War, the Space and Naval Warfare Command. I believe it's now NAVWAR, actually. Is it NAVWAR? Have they switched from SPA War? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so NAVWAR, uh, I know they changed the name of their warfare center. So they weren't SPA War system centers, but they're now NIWCs, and I don't know how they want that acronym <laughs> pronounced, but they're Naval Information uh, Warfare Centers, which I actually thought was a, a good name change uh, for their field activities. Uh, our naval information warfare centers. So the uh, those are where you would find engineering duty officers. Those commands in the field activities of those commands, providing those capabilities to the unrestricted line officers to employ uh, operationally. And I think you asked how I became an engineering duty officer. Uh, I did uh, two tours on uh, on uh, ships that were precoms. They were in the yard being built. Uh, both of them at that, the USS Arleigh Burke and the USS Gonzales. And the officers who were in charge of liaisoning with the shipyard uh, at the supervisor of shipbuilding were the engineering duty officers. That was part of their job. And during my two pre-coms, I became so fascinated and so impressed by what they did to work with the shipbuilder to get a ship built and actually delivered to the fleet. I decided that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my naval career. Yeah, I've only been on a shipyard once, but it is definitely an impressive uh, thing to see. So I was wondering, what does the culture of leadership for an EDO, how does that differ from command at sea, if at all? So um, I'm tempted to say that leadership is leadership and it shouldn't be any different. But in fact, I think uh, there are key differences in the way it's executed. Most officers... Uh, in the unrestricted line, certainly at least up until they get into major command and even then up through a major command, most of the time they're leading other uniformed military members. They're leading uh, their junior officers, they're leading uh, their enlisted sailors. Uh, engineering duty officers do some of that, but remember if, if we're spending most of our time working within a, a systems commands enterprise, a lot of that workforce, in some cases, the majority of that workforce is made up of civilians. Uh, and then you have the added complexity that some of the people who you're dependent upon to be part of your team uh, are there by virtue, not because they work for the government, but because the government contracted for their services in one way or another. So you have the civil servants that you are leading are still human beings, uh, and therefore, Human nature doesn't change whether or not you've put on a uniform or you wear a coat and tie to work, but it is both different mechanically because you have different tools and different rules in the way that you lead a, a civilian workforce versus a military workforce, and there are cultural differences as well. So I would say that uh, a good engineering duty officer early in his career, and by in early I mean that could be at the uh, the lieutenant, lieutenant commander level, is going to learn how to lead organizations that are made up not just of military members, but also of civilians who work for the government and potentially uh, civilians who are there under contract to the government from, uh, from private industry. And you have to meld all of those different inputs into a coherent and effective team. And one of the things that I used to read in a lot of like congressional testimonies in the 40s and 50s was that they wanted to move a lot of work out of out of the hands of the military because they came down with a certain type of bureaucracy and a command control uh, structure that doesn't really do so well for scientists and engineers. But when I think of, for example, a lot of Don Vandergriff's work on mission command and that kind of realm of thought, it seems to me that like you said, there's not too much of a difference between, you know, command of military and command of uh, scientists and engineers because of that delegation, the focus on people 
and and process as well, but not putting the process in front of uh, people as sometimes you hear people talk about military as though it's this industrial era kind of command and control thing where you just plan and then they go do. But I don't really see that as uh, as the distinction there. What do you think about that? Well, when I was in command of Carterock, I had almost 200 PhDs working for me. Um, and I would occasionally joke that it was more like being president of a university than it was command of a of a military organization. And I don't say that then people joke about PhDs. I never, I don't never joke about PhDs, but I would, the scientists who were working for me were as in, for the most part, every bit as dedicated to the nation's defense as anyone wearing a uniform. They were just contributing in a different manner. But it is true that a scientist with a PhD in physics who is the world's, one of the world's three or four leading experts on how sound propagates through salt water is going to be differently led and differently motivated than a 22-year-old second-class petty officer. And and that's not an insult to either the scientist or the petty officer. It's just meaning that uh, that uh, a 22-year-old sailor or Marine is, uh, is different at that point in their life than a 55-year-old PhD. Uh, a good leader is, and I, I've, I've actually written a, a piece uh, and Strategy Bridge, I think, was, uh, was, was kind enough to publish it a few years back uh, called Tailoring Leadership for a Perfect Fit. And I made the point that a good leader needs to tailor uh, leadership both to his or her own capability and also to the audience of followers that that leader is trying to lead. So there is a tailoring process. Uh, and a, a good leader tailors their leadership to the situation at hand. So what is something you believe about acquisition reform that goes against conventional wisdom? So the conventional wisdom, and especially today, we talk about that DOD needs to take more risks so we can go faster. Uh, and and the conventional wisdom is, is that defense acquisition is very risk adverse. I don't think that's right, and I don't think we're risk adverse. Uh, and if you look at programs, um, we've taken plenty of risk, uh, regardless of what you think about how the DDG 1000 program, uh, was conceived, was evolved or where it is now. Uh, it did not lack for technical risk at any point in that program. There was always significant technical risk, uh, uh, if you look at the Ford class carrier today, they are managing a, a fairly significant amount of technical risk still. Uh, so it wasn't that we were shy about biting off big technical challenges in the Navy's acquisition. I would say that it's not that we're adverse to risk. I think that the where I would concentrate is that we don't always do a great job of understanding the difference between what's high risk and what's not high risk. And I would say that if you want to improve acquisition, I would be less concerned about trying to get people to be less risk adverse, to be more risk tolerant. And I would work harder to make sure that people were more risk aware so that when they took risk, they were taking risks that they were aware of. I believe that most defense officials uh, at both military and civilian are perfectly willing to take on risk that they think is prudent in order to uh, advance our capabilities. That's not the problem. I think sometimes they don't always understand the risk that they're taking. And I, I struggled with that myself as a program manager. I was never worried about whether or not I thought I was taking on too much risk. The risk that I was taking on, I was always very comfortable with because I knew about it and I was able to recognize it and have some appropriate plan to either accept or mitigate that risk. What kept me worried was, were there risks that I was not aware of? And, and I think that uh, my, my take on that is, is we would do well to worry less about how risk adverse we are and more about how can we be better risk aware. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point there that the Department of Defense definitely will take on a lot of risk on a program. And you brought up the DDG 1000 Zoomwalt there. And I believe 
what they went through, they had 11 critical and brand new technologies they were trying to integrate on this uh, new lead platform ship. And maybe 11 was too much, right? Like when Admiral Rickover was building the Nautilus, a lot of people in the Navy came to him and told him to put on all these new types of uh, equipment that still hadn't been tested. And Rickover refused. He said, just one new thing, that will be the uh, nuclear propulsion. They didn't even put uh, torpedoes, I believe, torpedo tubes on that boat. So what do you think about this issue of, well, the DOD takes plenty of risk in a major approved program that's already funded. And a lot of people are just trying to get their requirements in that approved program rather than taking risks one at a time, um, maybe more incremental or combinatorial types of buildups through components and, and subsystems and then integrate around that. Yeah, so that's, uh, I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head. In fact, I, I mentioned the, uh, the, the symposium that I was at the, from the, uh, the American Society of Naval Injury Symposium. There was a whole workshop uh, on exactly that, where we looked at, uh, talked about uh, history and different ship programs and, uh, and what worked and what didn't work and how much risk was prudent to take on when you started to design a, a, a new ship. And you know, the, there's a, a balance because if you're not going to, there's, you know, when a new ship is being designed, there's always an urge to try and throw everything you can on it uh, that's coming down the pike because that's gonna add capability, which is ultimately what you wanna do. And uh, I'll use the program I managed as an example. We knew that bringing SPY-6 onto a DDG-51 was going to be plenty challenging. So brand new radar, very different from SPY-1, bringing that on was gonna be plenty challenging. And we knew also that uh, one of those challenges from an HM&E side was gonna be properly powering that radar. Because of those two things, as we were doing the rest of the design changes, we were very careful and really had to work hard uh, within the Navy to keep other potentially useful technology out of that initial design. Even though a lot of people would advocate that you know there were things that could have had meaningful impact. Uh, and, and I won't get into each one of them uh, that we eventually basically said no to, but there were other things that were proposed and, and we said, no, anything that anything else that we're going to do on that ship has got to be something where it's already been done before. We know how to do it, uh, even if it's going to add cost. So because we knew we had a couple of risk areas, we were very conscious to not add any additional risk uh, on top of that. So. Uh, that's part of good program management. And again, that's part of what I said about being risk aware is understanding what potential sources of risk are and making sure that in, a, in an acquisition, you don't have more than can be effectively managed and mitigated. So sticking with the part of the budget process, you tweeted how OTAs are fine tools but FAR 15 contracting is not the main cause of the valley of death. The POM process is. So there's a lot of there's a lot behind that short statement, including some acronyms. Could you unpack it for us? So sure. Uh, let me unpack the acronyms, and then I'll get to the point of what I was trying to say. Uh, OTAs are other transaction authorities. That is uh, a a legal authority given by Congress to the DoD for certain kinds of contracting that will not use all of the rules. They are contracts and they are legally binding contracts in OTA, but they will not use all the rules in the FAR, which is the Federal Acquisition Regulations. FAR Chapter 15, so when I say FAR 15 contracting, are the federal rules for contracts for which there will be the possibility of negotiations. So it's not a sealed bid, it's not just pick the, you know, get bids, pick lowest bidder, uh, that's a different section of the FAR. A FAR 15, you get a requirement 
offers bid on that requirement, and then there's the possibility that the government will take that bid and then use that as a basis to negotiate with the offeror to eventually get a binding contract. So it's a it's the section on negotiated contract. Uh, people like to criticize FAR 15 because the processes for the government to do a negotiated contract are not short and they can be time consuming. Um, but when people complained about that as the valley of death, and I'll, let me define what valley of death means to me. Um, the valley of death is people complain that the science and technology world, the, in the Navy, that would be the Office of Naval Research and their field activities at the Naval Research Lab, or industry through their innovation and research comes up with different potential technologies, and it's so hard to get that onto a program of record or into a program of record because we just can't transition it and we just need to be able to do this faster and shorter and the problem is we don't have the right contracting tools um, now the palm process and i probably should not have tweeted palm process but that's fine a palm is a program objective memorandum it is one of the documents in what you talked about earlier the planning programming budgeting and execution process. But within the services, the Army, the Navy, uh, Air Force and Marines, we tend to refer to it, the PVB process, somewhat synonymously as the POM process, because the services each produce a program objective memorandum as their input uh, into what the Office of Secretary of Defense eventually turns into a, uh, a proposal for a president's budget that gets submitted to the, to the Office of Management budget. So within the services, we refer to it as the POM process, even though that's part of the PPBE. And so I said it's the POM process that's the uh, that's the problem with the Valley of Death. Let me uh, let me say why what I mean about that. Within the Navy, programs have sponsors within the staff of the 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 Chief of Naval Operations, the OPNAV staff. So if you are the program manager for F-18s or F-35s or, or DDG-51s or Virginia-class submarines, you get sponsored by someone in the OPNAV staff whose job it is in the budget is to budget for your thing in the POM. And then when Congress appropriates that, you get money and direction back from the OPNAV staff to say, here, take this money that Congress has appropriated and go turn it into the thing, whether that's an airplane or a ship or a radio that Congress gave us the money to turn that thing into. There's a separate set of sponsorship, again, part of the Navy staff, through the Chief of Naval Research, that takes research and development money and uses that for science and technology in order to invent or at least explore the invention of technologies that will be useful to the warfighter. What we don't have is a sponsor whose job it is to take stuff from column A and move it into column B. If you ask a ship or aircraft program manager, why won't you take the new thing that O&R has just invented and get it on your ship, aircraft, or submarine, they will look at you and say, my sponsor didn't tell me to do that. I wasn't funded to do that. I wasn't given extra money to go pick up new stuff out of the research and development pot and put it onto my, my program pot. So I can't do that. And likewise, if you ask the research and development, they'll say, you know, pot of money and people doing that, they'll say, I can't now field this. That's what the program managers are for. They're supposed to take what we have come up with and put that onto uh, whatever platform is going to field it. And there isn't any, official who's in charge of the transition and that transition gets referred to as the valley of death uh, i know this is a hot topic within the navy right now what i've always thought is that there should be someone with palm authority uh whose primary job and it should not be with all due respect to the chief of naval research it should not be the chief of naval research uh, it should be someone within the naval requirements within the the n9 organization on the navy staff should be someone in the requirements whose job it is to fund the turning of r d into a platform 
so that it becomes part of the platform with a dedicated funding stream that is goes through the PBVE process and actually gets appropriated by Congress for that purpose. Uh, the other problem is is that, and this isn't a problem. This is just this is actually the way it is, and it's proper. Congress appropriates money for us to do things, and for the Department of Defense, and Congress wants to see the Department of Defense spend the money that they appropriate on the things that they appropriated it for. So if you spend your, I want to build a Virginia or I want to build a DDG-51 money on trying to get the next new thing onto that platform, they will correctly look at you and say, you didn't tell us you wanted to do that with the money. So someone needs to go and request money from Congress for the purpose of taking research and development, the fruits of research and development, and getting them fielded onto platforms and be responsible for that. And it needs to be someone with the right level of authority. The different platform sponsors in the Pentagon, air, surface, subsurface, are all two-star flag officers. Um, I think you need a, a two-star flag officer or a member of the senior executive service whose job it is to program for funds to take money out of what the Chief of Naval Research produces and get that into the platforms that are sponsored through the from the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for requirements, and that that needs to be part of the way the Navy budgets its technology transfer. And that was the point of my very short tweet. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Uh, isn't one of the issues, though, it's not just that there's a lack of someone with the defined responsibility of taking that across. I believe in the Army, they're now setting up cross-functional teams between Futures Command and their uh, systems commands in order to do that. But isn't it also the the sheer length of time it takes to get something through the prom process and then congressional approval, something like you have to start it three years ahead of time. Is it the length of time, or is it the number of layers of bureaucracy that you have to get approvals from, or or what's? So, so that's why I think it needs to be the process needs to be uh, changed in order to manage that more quickly. The the three years. So if you think about how long does it take to change a ship's budget, so it takes Congress a year, almost a year, uh, if the process is working correctly, and I won't get into the, we won't, we won't get into a conversation about continuing resolutions, or, or we'll just assume that the process works. The president, every February, gives a, a budget proposal to Congress. Congress then debates and enacts that through the authorization and appropriations process from February into October of that year. Uh, and then you have money starting in October of the of the new fiscal year. Well, if you want the president to give a input to Congress in February, then it's the previous October that the Department of Defense needs to be thinking about that. Uh, and if you want the services to have an input into that, then the services need a certain number of months ahead of time in order to produce the input into the Department of the Secretary of Defense. So depending upon when you're doing that, that's two years worth of from when I need it until it gets into a service palm through the, the Secretary of Defense, proposed to Congress, and then enacted to where there's now money to spend. That's, I just described two years worth of effort. In my mind, not only is that not going to change, that frankly shouldn't change because I'm actually opposed to the Department of Defense spending taxpayer money um, on the fly and without the process that ensures that taxpayer money gets spent in a way that is uh, intended by the people who the taxpayers elect to oversee the budget, the, the Congress of the United States. And, and I want the services and the Office of Secretary of Defense to be deliberate in what they do in proposing a budget. That's why I think you need to have a separate appropriation for and management of the technology transfer so that every year we tell Congress, hey, Congress, we're going to spend X 
dollars to transfer these kinds of technologies in general to these kinds of platforms in general. Uh, and then every year you figure that out as technologies are maturing and are ready to transition. That's, that's how I see it becoming faster. I think the complaining that, hey, from, from the time I need money, it takes me two and a half or three years to go through the entire uh, PBB cycle. Yes, that is what it takes, and, and frankly, that is what it should take. Uh, but we need something in that cycle that is programmed, planned, budgeted, and appropriated to be quicker for the things that need to be quicker, which is transitioning from R&D into a production line. So if I'm getting this right here, so some of those budget activities in the research, development, test, and evaluation appropriations so such as 6.1, 2, 3, which are the science and technology. And then usually the program record starts around 6.4. Right. Uh, there there needs to be a 6.3 and a half. There needs to be a 6.3 and a half R&D line managed to, that's designed to be the money that takes 6.1, 2, and 3 and gets it over to 6.4. Do you think that process might differ depending on how, whether it's a, for example, if it's a new platform, potentially that programming into 6.4 might need that standard process. But if I'm just doing, if I'm just trying to fully develop a component or some subsystem, which is, a, or maybe just a lower level pro program in ACAT 3, 4, yes. you, would, you could go I, through I, that process. I think, right. I think that what I'm recommending would be most effective for introducing new program, new components and new capabilities to existing platforms. Right, and I think that would go a long way to supporting some of what Congress has been doing with, for example, the middle-tier rapid acquisition. They've kind of said, oh, well, you can kind of skirt by a little bit some of the requirements or some of the uh, the 5,000 series, but they never really hammered on, well, where's the funding coming from for these right. programs? Right, I, and I think what Congress has done with, with mid-tier acquisition and frankly, what the department's done on its own authority has been very helpful. Uh, but again, I just caution my, my point of both the tweet and the, to answer your question is to have a good process is only part of the, the uh, or to have not good process. You have to have a process is long with the right authority. Congress has given DOD some reasonably flexible authority to get after that. So while it would always be great to have some additional flexibility. I don't see this as an authority problem where Congress needs to go pass another law to give us more authority to do different things. I think what we need is a, a different process, both within the building and up on Congress, with how we fund the things we want to do rapid. And it's not that we need to be appropriated more rapidly, but we need uh, spending accounts. We need the, the, the appropriations accounts that are designed and designated for rapid things. And those need to be designed to be rapidly. You don't want rapid SCN, Ship Construction Navy. Ships take four or five years to build. There's no, you know, there, you don't want that to be overly rapid. But getting that first laser onto a ship when ONR says, yep, I finally got a laser that really works, uh, and this is going to be a game changer, you want a, a pre-programmed, uh, a pre-programmed appropriation that's yearly that says, here's the money we're going to do to take that potentially major technology and rapidly turn it into a fielded capability. And you want someone who's in charge of managing that. So that's, that's my uh, advice to decision makers on how to improve speed of getting things out of R&D and into the hands of warfighters. Yeah, I'm really sympathetic to uh, that line of reasoning. It seems like one of the issues is that financial management in the Pentagon is kind of split between OSC cost assessment and program evaluation, CAPE, who does a lot of the programming aspects, and OSC comptroller, uh, who, who does a lot of the other financial management. So they do a lot of the budgeting procedures are done by comptroller. That takes them a full year. So the programming aspect usually has to come in that, that year before. So that's that two-year time span. So you're kind of saying potentially – Comptroller does less with with those accounts, or doesn't take us long through the procedures, and there's some kind of better better now, relationship. What I would say is is that, that there are accounts set up to be uh, 
yearly appropriated, renewed, and are designed for that flexible activity, right? Not that it's not that it's going to get not that it's going to get individually vetted on a fast track, but that you're always going to appropriate a certain amount of right. So, what is an appropriation? It's you know what is the palm process? It, it, again, I'll go to to what I know best: uh, an Arleigh Burke class destroyer. When the Navy sends OSD a a Navy palm that says I want two Arleigh Burke class destroyers and I want them to cost three billion, you know, a billion and a half dollars a piece. So I need three billion dollars for an Arleigh Burke class destroyer. Uh, in the end, the Cape looks at that, and OSD Comptroller looks at that. They fit in the budget. That becomes part of the president's budget. When Congress appropriates that, Congress says, here is, back in legislation, here is $3 billion of ship construction Navy money for an Arleigh Burke-class destroyers. Navy, go turn this money into two Arleigh Burke-class destroyers. And the program manager then has the responsibility of turning that money into ships by contracts and, and all the other vehicles a program manager has to do that with. What I want is a budget going to Congress that says the Navy's going to spend whatever the right number is, half a billion, billion, 10 billion, we'll, we'll, we, will, we will hash that out through the budget priorities. But every year, there's going to be some color of money that's going to last for some defined period, just like all appropriations, what we call colors of money do. There's going to be some color of money with a, a manager of that money whose job it is to take, I'm going to use this money to field transitional technologies onto existing platforms. And so you might not know while it's being appropriated which which technology that is because the technologies are still maturing. But every year you should know that I need to have a certain amount of effort towards fielding, taking and fielding things that are being invented out of the S&T world and transitioning that and putting that on existing platforms. And that will bridge because that'll bridge the valley of death, once those platforms are fielded, you'll have enough time once they're effective then for the programming of the host platform to catch up to that. And, and again, what I don't think we're very good at, uh, at doing that because there isn't a, not just a transition path, there's not a transition responsibility and it's and a line item of funding that says, I'm going to use this to transition. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense now. You're asking for another color of money. And you're thinking, I've heard several different types of uh, arguments for this over the years. Pierre Spray used to call it fixed pots of money for different mission sets. That So you're saying you would have a relatively more stable amount. Uh, whatever the amount is, it's relatively stable and it's allocated for this transitioning. And you're basically saying it's to be scheduled, but we're, we're going to like keep track of the accounting and, and the expenditures, and we'll be kind of held accountable after the fact for for what we've done. And it, and this is really going to help us propel new components and subsystems onto platforms, or or get those smaller programs through. Yes, that would, I, I think you you've got it now. That that is that is basically my thought process on that. Yeah, I don't know if you heard. There's an interesting proposal coming out of the Defense Innovation Board that was saying they needed a white appropriation that for software that would allow them to do more rapid, agile, iterative type uh, programs. And they were just saying, well, we're just going to have the programming aspect come in the year of the budget. So it'd be like kind of a one-year thing there. So they were talking about, we're still going to program line item this new color of appropriation. It's just we're going to do it later in the process Whereas you're saying there should be a color of appropriation, color of money that uh, is solely dedicated to the technology and the transition across the valley of death for new technologies that need to move quicker, that you can't go through that whole process. You need to allocate some funding to a company that might not otherwise be able to survive or whatever it is, get the capability to the warfighter faster. Right. I mean, some people in a pie in the sky world, but again, I don't, I wouldn't argue for this. Some people would say, well, all of our, you know, ideally all of our appropriations would be uncolored. And then once we got the money, we would just do whatever was most effective at the time with it. I don't think that's a good way to run a railroad uh, for a lot of reasons. I also don't think that uh, Congress would, or frankly should 
ever abdicate its responsibility to see that the Department of Defense uh, spends its money on what Congress wants it or has agreed to spend its money on. I mean, that is ultimately part of the power of the purse that is one of the separations of power between the executive and legislative branch that we have in our Constitution. Um, so having colors of money serves a governance purpose. Uh, and, and I wouldn't want to advocate short and short circuiting that. What I would advocate is embracing it and having a debt, like I said, a dedicated color for the thing that you would want to do so you could be explicit every year with Congress uh, and get their proper uh, approval and then have that available to do those rapid technology type activities. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's how I think we solve this is by, you know, if you say creating a new appropriation, that's probably as good a shorthand for it as, uh, as only it's a, a, a new appropriation and a new mindset as to what that appropriation were to do. But I would still do it within the context of the different appropriations that Congress uses for the defense budget. So when you were commander at Carter Rock, uh, you said something interesting that Carter Rock doesn't get line items in the budget process for itself. Rather, it's funded by customers. Now, these customers could be from industry or the government. Most likely, it's the Navy. But do you think this arrangement of selling the services of Carter Rock scientists and engineers every year, does that promote efficiency or does it have some adverse effects on planning or the workforce? So Carter Rock is by no is not unique in that. So uh, what you're referring to is uh, what's called working capital fund activities. Uh, every service has working capital fund activities uh, and they're not all S&T activities. Uh, many are, but a lot of uh, engineering support, a lot of depot level maintenance is, uh, is engineering activity. So uh, within the Naval Aviation uh, claimancy, uh, the, they have uh, Naval Aviation depots. So if you have an engine on an F-18 uh, that needs an overhaul or repair, it gets rolled out of the, out of the airplane. It gets sent to a Naval Aviation depot. Now that engine is the responsibility of the aviation type commander. So Air Pack or Air Lance owns that engine. They then pay that nav air field activity to perform an overhaul on the engine, much as if that nav air field activity were an industry partner. Um, and it performs the, the overhaul and then sends it back to the fleet. Uh, and uh, that nav air field activity that's part of the working capital fund charges its customers for the different activities, depot level maintenance activities that it performs. And ideally, unlike industry that makes a profit, uh, a DOD working capital fund activity should break even every year. And they actually have ways of accounting for what happens if you make money, which is not actually considered a good thing. You're supposed to break even. Uh, or if you lose money in a given year, which frankly, if you're going to make or lose money, it's a little bit better to make some than lose it. Uh, but there's ways long term on how to account for that um, with uh, with what you do with your future rates. So the Navy has working capital fund activities. Car Rock is one of them. So does the Air Force. So does the Army. So does DOD labs. Uh, the question of whether or not that's good is a is a question. It's the idea for it when Congress created this, and I think it dates back to the 60s or 70s, so it's been around for a while, and it's gone through different evolutions. So naval shipyards used to be like the naval aviation depots. They were working capital fund activities, and they were taken out of the working capital fund activities, and now they are mission funded. So every year, as part of the uh, POM slash PBBE process, the Fleet commanders, Commander Fleet Forces Command and Commander Pacific Fleet, decide in their budget request how much money they want to allocate towards shipyards and how many billets they want to fund there. And then once they do that, those billets are funded by the fleet, and then the fleet decides, okay, I've just bought 5,000 shipyard workers at Puget Sound Naval Shipyard if I'm Pacific Fleet. They then tell NAVSI, here's what I want you to do for 5,000 man years worth of welders and electricians 
and and chip fitters. You know, I want this submarine overhauled. I want this aircraft carrier dry docked. You know, they come up with a list, and then NAVSI, who's who's the the ISIC for the for those field activities, then takes the people that were funded by the fleet and the facilities and goes and executes that much work. You could do that with any of your activities. There's no reason we have to have a working capital fund activities. Working cap, the advantage of the working capital fund activities is that it is, they tend to be flexible. Uh, they tend to be responsive. They tend to be, uh, give the Navy from a management standpoint, a clearer indication of what things cost. And I'll give you an example. When I was a ship program manager, my contracting officer at headquarters and all of my QA inspectors on the waterfront were mission funded through NAVSI, either a mission funded act field activity or they were mission funded as part of NAVSI headquarters. So no DDGSCN funding was used for the paying of the salaries for that contracting officer or those quality assurance specialists. So that was basically for my budget a freebie. I'm not so sure we want freebies like that because it gives, it disguises ultimately what that ship really costs. Whereas if I needed someone from the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Philadelphia to perform testing on the gas turbines while they were under construction, while the ship was under construction, to make sure that the gas turbines were properly aligned with the rest of the powertrain, since they were from a working capital fund activity, I had to budget in that budget for a ship money to send to the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Philadelphia so that they could have a team of engineers do that test. For things that are procured with procurement money, having the procuring program manager pay for the human talent that it takes the government to produce that product is actually a good thing from a management standpoint because you understand what the real cost of your end product is. So in that sense, I think working capital funds are a good management technique. The other advantage that a working capital fund has is that you can take on customers outside the Navy. Uh, and in the case of Card Rock, we had other DOD customers and we had some commercial customers, people who wanted to use our test facilities uh, that, uh, that we would be able to charge for and, and, and they would be our commercial customers. Ultimately, it has its drawbacks because it, it is not particularly efficient like any business if you don't keep it fully and levelly loaded. So if you're going to keep your working capital fund activities loaded levelly over the long run, then I think it's a, it's a good management tool. If you're not, then I think that what you end up getting is wild swings in pricing, and that doesn't do anyone any good, uh, in which case you might as well mission fund the activity. So there are advantages and disadvantages. Frankly, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, but that's what makes a, the, the kind of the, the basics of a working capital fund activity versus what we call a mission-funded activity, an activity that just gets a budget to go have a certain number of people and a certain level of resources and a mission to go execute. So do you have any last advice for young acquisition professionals? So I'll give the same advice. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to uh, Sean Stackley when he was uh, uh, ASNRDA, some advice that he would always give that, uh, that I believe is excellent advice for anyone really in any kind of, uh, of complex endeavor, but certainly anyone in, in uh, defense acquisition. Uh, piece of advice number one, have a plan. Uh, piece of advice number two, know your numbers. So if, if you're in charge of something, have a plan for getting from where you are to where you want to be. And that goes back to one of the points I made in my essay about engineers and, uh, and the classics. I made the, the point that the book of John in the Gospels begins with, the, in English it's usually translated as in the beginning was the word, but that that Greek word that is translated as word could also be translated as plan, logos. So in the beginning you have to have a plan. So have a plan. If you don't have a plan for getting from you from where you are to where you need to be, you're not going to get there. 
And then you have to have the ability to know, are you on your plan or are you off your plan? And can you track to your plan? The other thing is I'm, I'm not so hung up on metrics that I believe that you should abandon your judgment, but that doesn't mean you can live metric free. You have to understand the numbers, whether that's budget or technical numbers that are driving your activity, that are driving your processes. You have to know what those numbers are and you have to know where their trends are and you have to understand where they come from and where they're going. But if you know your numbers and you have a plan, you can be successful in acquisition. Mark Vandroff, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Eric, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.